it's easy to see Cape Town and Sao Paulo as cases of cities in the, in the south that are, that are failing. Cape Town is running out of water. After three years of unprecedented drought, it could be the first major city in the world to go dry. And nearly a dozen more around the world are facing the same risk. We're seeing this happening across the globe. Never before in the history of the modern world has a whole city of this kind threatened to run out of water for its citizens completely. For me, it's almost like these experiences offer us a lot of insight into what what's happening more, more globally, right? In Cape Town, I think it's been very well publicised that the city was uh, about to run out of drinking water. In the past couple years, this area has received only about a quarter of the average rainfall, but demand for water has gone up, and this is the result. Sao Paulo had a much kind of quieter water crisis, but they did face uh, drinking water shortages and did have to go through a program of drastically reducing water consumption in the city. A moonscape of dead nothingness, cracked, parched earth. I think they show the way that, that these climate moments are happening and the ways they're going to kind of materialize. So I think it's very important that we be, we be clear in when we see these events kind of deepening inequality that we really call that out and we really pay attention to who's being asked to sacrifice in what ways. In both cases, what we see is, a, is the ways that infrastructures are being stretched to deal with new climatic dynamics. And so in both cases, you had pretty robust water management systems. You still do. But increasingly, it's getting harder and harder for the infrastructures that we have in place to deal with the changing climate. So whether that's in the form of you know, storm surges in cities or, or sea level rise, or in this case, scarcity. Yeah, there's this, this tension between the fixed infrastructures of a city and what that means for a really a, a dynamic that's changing and a, and a degree of uncertainty that people are, are unprepared for or don't quite know what it's going to look like. Welcome to City Road. I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to Nate Millington and Sophie Weber talking climate change. Hi, my name is Nate Millington. I'm a presidential fellow in urban studies in the Department of Geography at the University of Manchester. I'm an urban geographer interested in the politics of climate change adaptation, as well as the governance of water and waste, largely in Brazil and South Africa. So let's follow Sophie and Nate over to Sao Paulo and Cape Town. In both cases, what you saw was a a drought event that that appears to be linked to climate change. In both cases, the science is still being figured out and, and climatologists are still debating these questions. But in Cape Town in particular, it seems to be that the, the longer-term forecast is for a drier climate. And in Sao Paulo, what you see is kind of a local and a regional distinction where you're seeing more rainfall that's coming faster and heavier, and then you're seeing longer periods of scarcity. And so that's what you saw in Sao Paulo. But in both cases, there were these long periods of, of drought that led to a situation where the, the city, both cities basically came up against the possibility of running out of, of drinking water in, in very different ways. I, I think we see this in a lot of cities, right, including kind of both across the global north and south, where... Just these modes of development and these kind of this this sprawling development, it just means that like water has nowhere to go. When that starts to break down, it's like it just has huge implications, but everything just operates in this huge scale. And so what what people were pushing for during the crisis were these kind of smaller scale adaptive responses and, and this idea that you could treat water more locally, you could kind of access water closer, you could use gray water sources. And that stuff is really great, but it's it's just hard to know like what what do you do with a place like Sao Paulo where you have to provide drinking water to 20 million people. It's just, it's a huge undertaking that is just logistically really difficult on a number of different scales and levels. 
So what did the cities do when they were faced with these crises? Uh, How did Cape Town and Sao Paulo respond? So quite differently, actually, which is what's interesting. So the two cities responded to their respective water crises in quite different ways. In Cape Town's case, really what they did was they pushed a series of voluntary measures. Cape Town had a really public campaign. And so you had kind of things happening at the state level in terms of like water transfers from agricultural boards and other bigger picture water stuff. But then at the same time, the city really pushed people to reduce their water consumption. And so the city reduced its water consumption by something like 50% over the course of a couple of years, like a really astonishing degree. People were just using a lot less water. And some of that was because people were being penalized for using too much water. And so there was a, a financial incentive to use less. But at the same time, it was also, there was this voluntary campaign cohered under this this interesting term day zero, which is such a funny was a kind of, in some ways it was a management project, but in some ways it was also just an encouragement for people to use less. This idea that day zero was coming when the city would would basically run out of water and when water would start to be formally rationed. But in Sao Paulo's case, the city and the state government were very keen to to note that there wasn't really a crisis happening, that everything was under control. In Sao Paulo, there was a much more muted response. And a lot of what they did was they, they invested in new infrastructure and new water management and they also did this thing where they brought the, the pressure down on the water pipes. And so even if you were kind of using water at your same amount or you were using it in the way that you did, you were using it less. And so what, and what I find and what I've argued in a, in a paper I wrote on this is that what that meant was that for residents who were either who were farther from treatment centers, who were higher up, who had more precarious connections, they received less water. So there was this kind of de facto rationing that was happening even as the state was claiming that there wasn't. So it's Easy when the water runs out to talk about a water crisis. I like to use the word crisis because I think it's important to note that we're we're in a moment of of climate crisis. But at the same time, we're not affected by that in the same way. And there's different ways in which we are affected by by climate and climate change. Using the word crisis to describe these problems is is important for recognising that this is a really severe situation and that climate change is exacerbating the dynamics of access to water in cities. So the, I think the first thing to, to ask is, is crisis for whom? And I think that's the most important question. And I think, especially in a place like Cape Town, you've seen issues of water scarcity for a long time. So many residents have very differentiated access to water, as well as in Sao Paulo as well. So, that, so I think when, when we started to hear about a crisis happening, in part that's because experiences of scarcity were becoming more regularized. But again, crisis is always materialized within kind of existing dynamics of inequality. One is a kind of structural crisis, and this comes out of a lot of thinking in geography and beyond about, in our case, it's really this, yeah, this, it's kind of an infrastructural crisis, right? And, and so I, I come out of a, a school of thought in, in geography called urban political ecology, where we, what we're interested in is the ways that, yeah, that, that environmental goods and bads are in many ways mediated by these urban infrastructures. And so in some ways, the crisis is that the infrastructures can't keep up, so they no longer can, can supply what's needed. And so you see this famously what Stephen Graham called splintering urbanism or, or this kind of splintering infrastructures. And so on one level, the, and then there's also a bigger structural crisis, which we could talk about in terms of climate change, right, as a kind of structural crisis of, of capitalism or of this mode of, of the economy that we live in. But then I think at the same time, right, crisis, yeah, it plays a discursive role, as you, as you mentioned. So when we talk about crisis, the understanding is that there's some kind of break and that we're in a new situation from where we were before. It assumes a kind of break in the logic. So the idea is that we're, we're at a crisis and so we have to do something. And so it, it, it assumes that something has changed. And I, in many ways, what we try to do in the Cape Town work is to say, like, actually, while things have changed, they're also in many ways staying the same. So it's not just that, that suddenly we're in a climate change era, but actually that the climate change is building on these existing crisis tendencies and these existing inequalities. And in, in South Africa's case, right, the, the 
the ability to provide water for people in the context of this intense structural inequality, like it's really difficult. And it's not, I think like the municipality is in a position where it's, I'm not quite sure what they can do, right? It's a difficult kind of situation, especially when there's less and less money coming from federal government. And so the crisis is there, but, but, but what we're looking at is the way that crisis, we call it performative. And this, again, is my, my colleague and collaborator, Soraya Sheba at the University of Cape Town. It, it pushes certain narratives and it pushes certain ideas and the idea is that, it, you know, we're in a crisis, so we all have to come together in a certain kind of way. But the question is, like, who's coming together and for what? The other thing is that crisis can invite um, new kinds of anti-democratic responses. So the idea is that we're in a crisis now, we have to suspend all regular kinds of state society relations or um, public feedback and public engagement, community involvement, because the crisis is so bad that now we need to take very drastic measures. For about 20-ish years, South Africa has, has had a policy of free basic water. So everybody's entitled to a certain amount of water. But it's always been up to municipalities to determine how that gets allotted, basically. And so what we've seen both during the crisis but also before, there's been an effort to, to change the, the free basic water allotment to being one where you have to be... It used to just be that water was given for free for the first certain amount, and then after that, you were charged. And so if you couldn't afford water, you, didn't, you just kind of stayed within that limit. But increasingly, municipalities found themselves with a lot of debt because of this, and so there was a lot of unpaid debt because people just couldn't afford their water bills. And so they started to do is institute new policies where... Water is not free for anybody unless you can declare yourself as, as indigent. And so that's what we're seeing happening in Cape Town is people are being declared or, or they're proving themselves to be indigent. And in doing so, it means they get access to, to a free source of water. But it's a quite kind of laborious process and it's difficult for people to do it. And it puts the burden on households to sort of prove their poverty in a number of different ways. And so we see it as kind of a regressive response where rather than just having a situation where everybody has some access to water... It's changing in a way that, that we're kind of worried about. And also for many people in Cape Town who live, you know, in formal communities or in townships, often what they've done is subdivided their homes out. They've often subdivided their background out, backyard out. So you might have you might have 15 or 20 people living in a house that's on the, like, seem to have four people in it, right? And so that means that in those cases, when you're reducing people's water loads, they often are are really going without, like really without water. And part of that is through the, the, this technology called a water management device, which has been rolled out throughout South Africa, which basically gives people an, an allotted amount of water per day and then shuts off. And then the next day there's water again. But so the idea is to basically keep consumers from creating, from getting in debt to the city, you know, which makes sense in a kind of fiscal, fiscal way, but at the same time means that we see a disproportionate impact of of water scarcity on the urban poor. You're listening to 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. And we're listening in on a conversation between Nate Millington and Sophie Weber about climate change adaptation and water in Sao Paulo and Cape Town. And next, we turn to the importance of infrastructure. Can you tell us more about infrastructure? Yeah, sure. I mean, infrastructure is one of these terms that kind of means everything now, but it, it's still one that I really like. In every part of our day-to-day life in the city, we depend on a whole series of different infrastructures. Physical infrastructures like pipes and wires, but also these social and natural infrastructures. But often we don't really realise how important these infrastructures are 
for circulating urban goods and services until they break down. So, I mean, I think when I first got into thinking about infrastructure, it was a way to, to, to understand that, you know, the cities that are lives are just mediated by all these technologies that on some level are out of sight. And so famously, right, Eric Swingadow has an article where he talks about turning on the tap and suddenly there's water there. And you have no idea that, like, just the vast apparatus of technology and politics and power and land that, that materializes in that, like, really simple thing of just turning on a tap. But then soon you saw after kind of critiques coming from people working in the global south, especially saying, actually, water doesn't always come out of the tap. And then increasingly we see that now in places throughout the U.S. in particular where we see water cutoffs and shortages. And, and Flint, again, is like the, the, the most important example of just the, the increasing difficulty of, of accessing some of these municipal services. And so in my first sense, that's the way I thought of infrastructure as these networks of, of water and waste and energy that are really critical to human life, but often we sometimes forget about them, right? But they like they they're in the background of everything that we do, like the electricity coursing through this microphone and all this kind of stuff, right? But then I do like this idea of, of infrastructures of care or, or social infrastructure and this idea of the built environment as a kind of, as a kind of mechanism for our own survival, right? But, but one that I think is, it, it tends to allow for the survival of some, but not all. And so, you know, this idea of social infrastructure is a way to think about, like, what are the communities and, and solidarities and and sort of lives and, and, and interrelations and networks that we can build that allow us to withstand these, these really increasingly precarious times. And I think, I don't quite know what the, the answer is to that, but you know, it, I think for me, infrastructure goes beyond just the, the material stuff that we're talking about to really include this idea of like, how do we build communities that can withstand crisis? Because that's what's happening, right? And that's what we're living under. And what about nature as infrastructure? Is that better than physical infrastructures? I think it all just depends on where, yeah, where, where and, and how and what projects. I think it really changes. So in my work in Sao Paulo, I looked at a project that was designed to basically take what was a historic floodplain and turn it back into a floodplain. But because what you've seen in a lot of Sao Paulo is that because there's a housing crisis that goes back decades, people have occupied those, those lands. And so the trade-off was, was basically to say, we're going to turn this area into a floodplain, but in doing so, we're going to evict, you know, 40,000 people from their homes, right, who've lived there for, for decades. And so that, in that case, I think the trade-off is really, yeah, is a, is a perverse one. It's not a, it's not, it's not an egalitarian one. It's not a good one. At the same time, I think I do think green infrastructure and this idea of using nature as a, as a mechanism for, yeah, for remediating landscapes is exciting in a lot of different ways. It's just a matter of being clear as to what the what the trade-offs are, what the drawbacks are, who's benefiting from it, what are the kind of implications of it, and who's being asked to sacrifice for, yeah, for these projects and for these processes. So the governance of water has been studied really widely in geography, particularly around the kind of nature of the state or private management of water in cities, but also um, not in cities. So how did these kind of state society, but also like state market relations, were they changed during this crisis? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So in, in Sao Paulo's case, the, the water is provided by an entity called Sabespi, who are a, a private company, but the, the state owns roughly 51%. So they're kind of a parastatal in a sense. And so they have a, they have a real, they have a profit motive to produce more water. And so it's one of these tensions that we find a lot in, in water and water governance and, and climate change is that for Sabespi, the crisis was, was a financial calamity on some level because they weren't selling as much water to consumers. And so they had to then recoup those expenses later. In Cape Town's case, it's it's similar but different. So Cape Town does not have a privatized water system. It has a municipal kind of and a national water system. 
But at the same time, what, what we find, and this is research I've done with my collaborator, Sreya Sheba at the University of Cape Town, is we've been looking at how the need to balance the budget around water means that even if you're not even if you're not charging or even if you're not selling water for profit, there is this tension where, where urban residents become consumers of water. And so they have to basically make their money back up. And so what we saw a lot is this, this interesting tension between an attempt to balance the budget, but that becomes increasingly difficult when people are using less water. So in both cases, there's a, there's a perverse incentive on some level for people to use more water because the, the city needs that revenue. But at the same time, there is less water, right? And also there's an environmental impulse for people to use less. And so these kind of budgetary dynamics become really critical and people really, it becomes difficult for municipalities to to, to kind of manage these. And this is an argument that we make in, the, in a paper we're working on is that, you know, as we face these dynamics of climate, climate change, what we're seeing is these intense inequalities that already mark these cities in a place like Cape Town, right? Inequality is so intense and so racialized and so serious that when you start to figure in these new climatic dynamics, it gets quite tricky because what you take is an, a system that's already uneven and already difficult to live in, and then it just becomes, even, it gets further stretched. And so that's, that's kind of a, a metaphor that we work with where we're seeing that as a version of how we see climate change starting to play out in these places. You've done this work in Sao Paulo and in Cape Town. What kind of insights have you been able to generate from thinking across these two cases that might not otherwise have been obvious? Or do they sit kind of separately for you? I think it often really depends on on the specific question you're asking. And so in the case of the crisis, I think it really revealed like different modes of civil society engagement on some level. I think it's interesting because Cape Town, I think the, the management at the state level was very transparent. But at the same time, you didn't have a kind of civil society response necessarily that you did have. There were some social movements that were pushing for more. Um, that were pushing against water management devices. You did have activists that were kind of calling attention to the crisis. You did have some mobilization Whereas in Sao Paulo, I think in some ways you had a bit more. There was people kind of, there were groups that emerged that really wanted to call attention to the crisis, wanted to call attention to transparency, wanted to understand the water system. But in both cases, these systems are so complicated that it's hard to know where to intervene, you know, and you find ways to intervene, but then they're just such like, they're such complex systems that, that operate on such massive scales that it becomes kind of difficult. So this question of existing inequalities was what I wanted to ask you about next. Particularly, Sao Paulo and Cape Town are both marked by extremely racialized inequality. And I think that uh, in your work, you suggest that climate change, climate crisis exacerbates and, and kind of works on top of these existing inequalities. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that is, I think that's what we're seeing throughout. And I, I come back to, you know, the Neil Smith's line that there's no such thing as a natural disaster, which remains really kind of prescient. So what you see in these crises is that they're, in many ways, they're materializing in these landscapes that are already defined by intense inequality. And so depending on where you are within that, that structure means you're exposed to either, in this case, scarcity, but in other cases might be flooding or sea level rise because we have these relationships between yeah, land value and inequality and climate that, that I think are, are really yeah, they're hard to get around. And I think even as we're focusing on this, this issue as it's kind of operating through the municipal budget, I think we can expand that argument out to really highlight that that what we see happening with climate change is that there's a real danger of of creating these these situations. Our, our colleague Daniel talks about Daniel Aldana Cohen talks about eco apartheid, right, which we're seeing happening where you know the wealthy are able to to shield themselves from the effects of climate, both at a global level but also within cities themselves, and poor urban residents don't have that ability. And so, I've done work around flooding as well, which is very similar, where people who are exposed to floods. Often that comes down along lines of race and class and the ways that you might expect and gender as well. 
You've been listening to 2SER on 107.3 FM in Sydney and a conversation between Nate Millington and Sophie Weber about climate change adaptation and water in Sao Paulo and Cape Town. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is City Road. See you next time.